0: Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, Tablet or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com/backslash/solvinghealthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quatro Caramante I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa, and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation. As usual, you demanded it, and we are trying to deliver it. There have been tons of questions regarding the vaccines that are available within this country. And so we thought we're going to bring the best of the best. We got some recurrent guests. We got some new guests, and we're really excited about this. This is um, this is something special. Um, before, Actually, I will tell the story of why we got together, though. Um, so Suman emailed us. Uh, I think it was yesterday morning telling us about a colleague that uh, basically at the vaccine clinic or center refused Moderna, if I'm not mistaken, um, in terms of uh, which vaccine to, to, to receive. And when we heard that, it was like, this is crazy in this country right now, in the middle of a pandemic, people are turning down vaccines that are straight up life saving. You know what I mean? And especially when we're up in and up, uh, like we're in some crazy times in Ontario. I'm going to work a week early because of the, because of the, uh, demand, like we need to do something about it. So we said, Hey, within 24 hour notice, we're going to get this panel together, do a live cast, answer all things vaccines. So before we get started, just a couple of housekeeping things. So if you guys want to get a copy of the, um, the the podcast and the videos sent to you directly. Just type in news into your uh, into the uh, comment section into the into to the comment box, and you'll be able to. That signs up for the newsletter, and through the newsletter, you get uh, the content sent directly to you. The other initiative, I just want to give a quick plug to. In about a week, we're starting a new program called Solving Wellness. We know there's a lot of uh, struggling healthcare providers out there, and this is an avenue where we're going to provide virtual workouts, yoga, uh, stress management, uh, cooking classes, um, all these things that I think are basically we're trying to do our part to reduce burnout because it's clearly, uh, it's never going to be as big of an issue as it is now. And first month is going to be free. Um, You sign up for that newsletter, you'll get the heads up. We're aiming for May 1st, Julia. I think we could do this. Even though, <laughs> even though I'm in the thick of the ICU, goddammit. All right. Um, last thing I want to plug real quick. Two things, actually. So Julia Hajar, I just want to thank. She's going to be curating our, quest- our question. She's our social media lead. Um, she has a great website called The Spoonful of Science where you can get great nutrition advice. Thank you, Julia, as usual. Last thing, solventhealthcare.ca backslash store. Check out the merchandise. Oh my goodness! You guys hit that up if you're interested. All right, I want to introduce you, Dr. Lorna Saxinger. We got Dr. Lisa Barrett, Dr. Zane Chagla, and Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, all infectious disease specialists. And uh, thank you guys for joining the show. I'm gonna start the first question, Lenora. If you're if you're you're up for it, um, how? This is a big one, actually. How did the... Uh, When we talk about the vaccines, like specifically the mRNA vaccines, so uh, Moderna and Pfizer, how do they work?
1: Oh, this is actually a great question. I actually love these vaccines. I think they're the coolest. so a couple of things about mRNA vaccines, they're talked about as being very, very new, but work on them has been going on for a long time. And the only reason that we didn't have any come through before COVID-19 was because we didn't have epidemics of the diseases that they were made for with enough cases to be able to test them. So a lot of vaccines were just kind of developed and you know tested to a certain extent. And then as soon as COVID-19 came along, they pivoted to start working on COVID-19, like the day after the sequence was published. And so we're not starting from nothing. And they basically use a lipid kind of formulation, a fatty formulation to deliver a tiny fragment of the code for a viral protein. And so it's not a piece of the virus. It's just basically a time-limited message to your own cells to make a piece of viral protein. Um, mRNA is really, really delicate. It's actually a real pain in the lab because you can mess it up and it goes away very, very quickly. And so it's not something that stays around. You get this message. Your cell uses it to make a tiny fragment of virus to train your immune system to recognize it, to make a memory about it and be able to attack it later and defend you later. And then the mRNA is basically gone. It can't actually do anything else within your body, and so it's kind of a like a recipe that goes away as soon as you use it. Is that okay?
0: That is perfect. That is perfect, um, Lisa. Maybe we could talk about the um, AstraZeneca and, uh, and uh, Johnson Johnson's the difference between that and the uh, mRNA vaccines.
2: Yeah. So they have they're different platforms. What we call platforms, and all that means is that mRNA is a little message to your cells, like a little love note to give you a, a, a message about uh, the spike protein like of SARS-CoV-2, whereas the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen and AstraZeneca and like. Those vaccines actually insert the little love note into the backbone of a dead virus that floats around quite a bit. It's a cold virus called adenovirus. If you want to be cool on Friday night at the cocktail party, you can talk about the adenovirus.
3: (laughs) There's no cocktail Um, parties right now. Hey, virtual, virtual, virtual.
2: virtual, uh, virtual. virtual. I'm on the uh, We still believe in virtual get togethers only. Um, so, basically, this cold virus backbone gets the little love note. It, uh, because we know that the common cold gets into human cells pretty easily, this doesn't replicate, doesn't divide, doesn't actually cause a cold. Impossible for that to happen. It's dead. Sends a little love note in, sends the spike protein in, and educates your immune system. And the rest of the story is very similar to what happens with mRNA. Doesn't get into your DNA, doesn't become part of your genetic code, no matter how much you might like to be better after your vaccine. From a DNA perspective, you will not be. So this is slightly different, but same little up note of the spike protein, different backbone and also very safe. We've used it for ages, um, but never uh, to do uh, this with an infectious disease backbone. We've tried it with hep C before. We've tried it with some other uh, diseases. This is the first one for a non-chronic virus. So very cool, very exciting.
0: Lisa, let me tell you, I was quite excited to get my love note. Okay, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Absolutely. Zane, I think this one uh, might be for you. What does, when you you hear vaccine efficacy, what the hell does that mean?
3: Oh, I'm glad you gave him this one, because I can't. (laughs) So
4: there's a lot of (laughs) points here. You know, I
0: I got love for you. I got love for you. (laughs) Yeah, the
4: hardest one's going to Sumon, I'm sure. Um, So, you know, again, we we've There's ways that this gets misrepresented out there where it's like you know X percent of people who get the vaccine get COVID. That's not it. So literally, we're taking a bunch of people in today's world, we give half of them the vaccine, we give half of them a placebo, or in some of the real world studies, we look at people that are unvaccinated that are pretty similar, and we see just living day-to-day life what percentage of people get COVID who get vaccinated, what percentage of people get covid who are unvaccinated and that really is vaccine efficacy the difference between the two groups living in this world how many get covid with the vaccine how many get covid without the vaccine and it's important you know we talk about efficacy as just mild so just you know having covid-19 and a symptom moderate having covid-19 and a few symptoms, some of which which are slightly concerning, sometimes needing, you know, hospitalization, severe, meaning hospitalization, needing medical care, and then obviously critical, meaning ICU and, and death as the last bit. And so, you know, we can compare these vaccines in their Symptomatic mild COVID 19 and AstraZeneca and Moderna and Pfizer are 95%, AstraZeneca 70 to 80%. But again, you know, that's the mild cold, that's the minor symptoms. When we talk about efficacy as it compares to severity, so people that are hospitalized, people that die of COVID 19 that get the vaccine as compared to placebo, it is incredible. All of these vaccines, Essentially, all of them after they start working, after there's time after their dosing regimen, even after the first dose, the amount of severe disease is minuscule. The the hospitalizations are low, like in in some trials, zero. Uh, And again, you know, deaths are really not described. There are no real deaths that have been described in these trials in people who have gotten a full series of vaccines. And, you know, it's incredible. There's data that actually just came out from the United States of the people that are fully vaccinated that eventually died of COVID-19. It is like point zero 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 zero. There's like seven zeros, I think. A lot of zeros. Three percent of people that were fully vaccinated that 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 eventually died of COVID-19, right? Like that, literally that person was unlucky and could have been hit by a car the next day. And that was probably a higher odds of them dying than anything else, right? So, you know, again, lots of numbers get thrown around. The ones that are important is these vaccines have significant prevention in terms of going to hospital. These vaccines have significant prevention in terms of an individual dying. So as a personal protection, these vaccines are highly efficacious. And then when we talk about, you know, milder symptoms, cold like symptoms, runny nose, there is a little bit of a difference. But in the grand scheme, that's probably not what we want to care about as much in the middle of a public health emergency.
0: Amen. One out of one hundred and thirty thousand in the trials, I think, was hospitalized. That's the kind of numbers we're talking about. That should be the only data they should, po- well, not the only, but like the major like profile when it comes to information about our, our, our vaccines is, is in terms of how impactful it is. And then what I love is it's um, real world data too, right? Like the real world data has been um, consistent in terms of the impact it's had on on uh, hospitalizations and ICU admissions and death. Okay. To my Bardi, my friend. We just uh, maybe we'll touch on. Maybe this is more of opinion. I'll, I'll leave the AstraZeneca like how we've handled AstraZeneca. Your opinions on potentially who. Should and shouldn't be receiving that uh, based on the data with thrombosis that's been provided the risk in in younger age groups. I'll leave the floor open in terms of where you want to go and then we'll jump on it from there, my friend.
3: Okay, yeah, so listen, we know that the AstraZeneca vaccine has had a lot of press, and I think that uh, one thing that I'm going to kind of step back from the science for a bit, that has really made a lot of people nervous, and I think that um, we have to realize that we can throw as much facts at people as we want, but we have to realize that the well was was poisoned with AstraZeneca, for AstraZeneca, right from the very beginning, and I think that's something that the messaging hasn't reflected. I get it. We know, we found this um, uh, very, very rare complication, the, the thrombosis complication. It was seen in Germany. And I think it's very, very important that they were um, uh, transparent about it. We've seen a couple of cases here. We know the numbers, but the thing is people are still not getting it. And why is that? It's because when the initial uh, data was coming out, the initial news stories were coming out, we have to understand that's what people look at. And I get it. I understand why people are uh, a bit uh, nervous about getting it. From us, we have we've already, I think, made our case that look, this is a very rare complication. You have more of a chance of getting a clot flying on a plane to Mexico, you know, in your leg, than you do this rare clot with AstraZeneca. People understand that uh, if you give this to um, somebody, they're, they're probably going to be fine look what's happening in England, they're in, in such a good situation. But I think what people want from us, and that's something that I really want to make clear, is that would we give it to a family member? Would we give it to a colleague? Would I take it myself? And the answer is yes. I get it, we understand the numbers, but I want people to understand too that we have confidence in this vaccine. I would never recommend this to somebody if I didn't have confidence in it. And if I wasn't, uh, and recognizing that, I think that there's a, a very small risk. And the other thing I want to say is that we have to start treating, um, the public like they, um, uh, you know, of course they, it's complicated information, but we want people to make a decision for themselves. So, um, there's some people that won't take it regardless of what you say. I get it. Uh, I'll. I can try to alleviate the concerns. It might not work. But if somebody wants to ask me questions, I'll answer it. And then if they want to make the choice to take the vaccine, even if they're you know 41 years old, I think we should we should do that. And uh, so that that's my thing. And I think the messaging from us at this point should just show our confidence. That this is a safe and effective vaccine that we would give to our family members, colleagues, and take ourselves. And I would.
0: Lisa, you got you want to add something?
2: Yeah. And I, A, I 100% agree uh, on the messaging there. It's interesting. I want to come back a little bit to the kindness part. I've gotten a lot of uh, emails and messages from people that have said that uh, when they express some hesitation or that they're concerned, that they've been getting a lot of pressure from other people and health providers. And I think that's not cool. Like, it is not cool. It is good to ask questions. It is good to be informed. And if you do have... I, I would prefer that people ask questions and make informed decisions that are not pressurized uh, than for people to do something that they think we're telling them they have to do something And to your point Simon, you have mentioned that but I think it's really important that we remember a little bit of the kindness part here and you know people have said to me well, I live in a place that's never ever had a COVID case. There's 500 people, and I live way far north. And you know, I feel like my risk of COVID is very, 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 very low—lower maybe than Astrazeneca I might want to wait a month. And my answer to them is, listen, if that's what you think you want to do, but number one, remember you are still at risk. You're not protected. Number two, you may transmit to other people, even if you don't know you've got a virus. And so you need to be mindful of other people and yourself. So that's a, that's an informed decision-making process. So I hope people don't feel too pressured either because we want people to feel good about taking this, but not that we're trying to force them into something. And I think that's an important part of maintaining uh, confidence around our vaccine program in Canada too.
0: I, I'm just going to thank you for that. And I just want to briefly soapbox this thing. Um, when we talk to our patients, it has to come from a patient of compassion and empathy, because I'll speak from a lot of the, you know, the black community. There's a lot of hesitancy regarding, you know, just regarding the medical, like trust in the medical system. There's been, you know, you look at the Tuskegee trials, you look at within the indigenous communities, we've had, you know, separate hospitals in Sioux lookout in the eighties, which is not that long ago. So there is a, 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 there is reasons why there is mistrust. So, Come with that lens of compassion. Take the time. Inform. Do not shame. And we'll we'll be able to get better results. Um
2: you can tell I get pink cheeks about this one. It yeah, makes me it. All... good. Yeah. I was
0: flexing before. I'll do it too, buddy. Uh, this one I I I'll go to bat for every time for, for real. Um Lenora, this might be a, a tough one, but in Excellent. terms of
2: <laughs> we, we,
0: have, we have a lot of people. Um, we're We'll say in the context of AZ, but we'll say, we'll actually with any of the vaccines, we'll say a lot of concerns when people have pro, uh, uh, hypercoagulable conditions. They've had previous DVTs or um, um, they have a, a hereditary condition. Any uh, considerations when they're trying to decide on either the type of vaccine or to get the vaccine at all?
1: So uh, first, I'll make a shout out to Thrombosis Canada website, um, which is a useful resource. But, you know, initially there was a lot of discussion about kind of what I would almost call routine clots, like DVT pulmonary embolus. Um, And that signal was very thoroughly looked at. And it is not something that should influence people's worries or risk. They should not have to, you know, those kind of risk factors for thrombosis that we classically think about um, and having had previous clots and stuff like that should not impact really your choice of a vaccine. It's an open field and you should, you know, take what you're basically suited for according to your public health area. The the risk of the unusual, kind of more immunologically based, um, unusual territory, large thrombosis associated with low platelets, that's kind of a completely different thing, and I think that we have to make sure that we're not getting them muddled up, um, because that is one where there's still more to be known about it. But you'd hesitate more, um, I think, if you know younger women are people who've had this primarily, not exclusively, and it remains extremely, extremely rare. It's like really very, very, very rare, but it's, and it's, an, it's an association to watch and it's something to continue to track. So if people have had, for example, a history of thrombosis, DBTPE, if they're on hormones, um, if they're worried about any of those things, it actually doesn't matter necessarily. You don't have to worry extra.
0: That I think to so many people will be extremely useful. I can't count how many people have asked me that exact question. Um, Zane, you're going to piggyback that.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I kind of I have an analogy, I've been trying to give to people to really explain this, right? So say you, you live in an old house, power goes, you think, oh, I have old wiring, it must be that it's the common thing, right? The same, the people that have risk factors for clots, oh, they must be at higher risk for this. You go down to your your wire room, and no, actually, some ice chewed the cords apart, and that's really why your house is out of power. It's a random event. It doesn't. You couldn't have predicted it. It's random to certain people, um, but that's that's the reality of this, right? It's not the typical traditional risk factors. It's a random event that occurs in a set number of people, um, and, and I think that's that's the big point of this, right? And and so we have to give risk benefit arguments, as, as we talked about you know this is a, a a a balance that really takes into account what's going on outside right it's not not uh, unreasonable to say british columbia alberta manitoba saskatchewan ontario and quebec are dealing with the worst pandemics that they've dealt with throughout this entire piece and so that risk-benefit is favoring benefit for so many age groups. And, you know, as we're talking right now, you know, Ontario has really tried to change that risk-benefit argument um, and approved the AstraZeneca vaccine for those over the age of 40, really emphasizing so that, that. It's
0: officially, eh? It's official, like it yeah. That's, that's no, why I, was, I, I hesitated for bringing it 24. up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a, yeah that's... That's gold, man.
4: Yeah. And I think that's that it, is... right? Like, you know, we're seeing the average age in some ICUs at 55 years old, right? So it's, it's unconscionable that we could have offered people a vaccine, counselled them about their risk. Now we have ER docs and, and primary care docs that recognize how to diagnose this disorder. We have people on call 24 seven to deal with this disorder, but, we are running out of ICU beds. We're running out of hospital beds. And if I could give this vaccine and lower someone's risk of hospitalization in two weeks by 80 to 90%, you know, I think that's, that's something that needs to be balanced with all of this. And in Ontario, that balance really favors this. It may not favor it in other places, uh, where, where the pandemic is, is in, in much better shape. But right now in Ontario, for most age groups, that balance favors getting the vaccine compared to not getting the vaccine.
0: Yeah, and yeah, go ahead, Lenore.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, it makes me think of what was going on in the UK. The UK brought their B117 surge under control with the same vaccines that we have available right now and public health measures. So all those things are important. Um, And they actually, I remember they hit 1,800 deaths per day like 1,800 deaths per day um, and now they're down to like well under 100 deaths per day using the measures that we have at our disposal right now. And I think that like they, they have like, what a handful of cases of these clots, like literally a handful. And you're comparing that to 1,800 deaths a day. Like that's, that's a very important real world example of why we have to use all the tools we have right now. Like we don't wanna go there and we have the same tools to bring it under control right here. Wow.
0: No, I, when you put it into that perspective, I think that really, that really uh, clarifies the issue. Uh, but I, I, gotta say, as uh, someone in Ontario and seeing the patients in the ICU, that a lot, most of my patients in the ICU couldn't get the like wouldn't be eligible for the vaccine for for a while. So this is a a huge step in the in the right direction. So Lisa. Um, I get a ton of these these questions about I'm pregnant and I'm I'm not sure sure whether to take the vaccine or not. Any thoughts on that uh, question?
2: Lots of thoughts. So. Um... Right now, there's no evidence uh, out there that being pregnant, there's not a lot of evidence, period, but increasingly in the real world, it's amazing how often people are are pregnant who didn't think they were pregnant and actually got vaccinated. And that's an emerging piece of information that's being collected from around the world. Uh, And certainly there have not been signals that this is unsafe at all. There are some early indications and some of the um, gynecologic society and obstetric societies have started to look at, including within Canada, whether or not if you get COVID-19, you may actually get more significant disease. Uh, and of course, that has a risk for babies. So actually getting vaccinated, not only is it probably very safe, but also um very much so. You don't want to go down the road where it might actually be harmful. Um, getting any critical illness when you're pregnant is bad. And COVID-19 and the variant disease is, in, is guess what, uh, becoming increasingly uh, more uh, deadly and in younger people. And that's who gets pregnant. Uh, so overall... This is a time when if you get offered a vaccine, um, talk about it with your health provider. I still tell people that because there's lots of concerns and and other bits to go in there. Um, But really at this point, um, particularly with some of the signals even being seen in Canada and and some of the obstetrics and gynecologic uh, associations saying, hey, this may actually be, COVID-19 may actually be worse uh, in people who are pregnant, then you really do wanna get all the protection you can. that doesn't say stop doing all the other stuff. Of course, I am. I am. I am the hobby horse on making sure we don't throw out the rest of the toolbox as well. Um, please don't throw out your toolbox, please, because we will not get out of this. The UK also did a crap ton of testing uh, in their uh, their toolbox post vaccination. To keep this down. But pregnancy, I would suggest going for it. Simon, you had something to add in there.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, where I mean, I'm in Peel, which is uh, one of the, uh, along with Scarborough, the hardest hit regions in the, uh, in, in the, in the province. And uh, in the last two weeks, we've been seeing a lot of, of, of pregnant patients. Um, to be fair, like uh, these are a lot of people that are having very, very heavy exposure, heavy prolonged exposure, whether it's at work or usually if, if, if they're a household member of somebody who's an essential worker. And I, I've seen some pretty harrowing stuff. Um, and what I mean by that is people that are getting sick, uh, you don't wanna be in hospital when you're pregnant, but I do feel that the, the disease is certainly uh, more severe. I'm not saying that as a scare tactic, I'm just saying that it's absolutely true that pregnant women, uh, especially in the third trimester are more at risk. Um, this said, I think that, um, for example, in my hospital, we, we were talking and counseling women right at the beginning about getting um, getting uh, vaccinated. And I think, to uh, Lisa, to your previous point, I think that um, people being scared and asking questions is an important thing. That's not vaccine hesitancy. That's people asking questions. And I think a lot of what we were able to do is address those questions, reassurance, and give something that clearly works. So I really wish we could give every, everybody vaccine, to be honest, but uh, this is certainly something that we need to um, really look into because uh, it, it's a risk factor, especially in, with, with the variant.
0: Yeah. The one thing I'll say is legit w- with my colleagues in the GTA, and now we've, we, even in, in our area, we are seeing some pregnant uh, patients for sure. And it's scary. <laughs> it is like, I mean, as an intensivist, you rarely see a sweat. But when you get that call from, yeah. uh, oh my God. It's just, there's just so much at stake, right? Like it's just, it's just another level. So yes, uh, thank you very much for that uh, amazing uh, answer. Zane, you you you, ta- you um, addressed this a bit, but I want to just make it clear as day. When do you think people are considered safe or immune after they get their first dose? So one of the specific questions was a uh, grandparent wondering if they could uh, hug their kid after a certain period of time after getting the first dose
4: yeah these are really tough questions right because you know the the problem is is the one dose is they aren't what the clinical trials are, are based on to show what the last efficacy is there is effects though i mean there's real life stuff that's coming out around astrazeneca around Moderna, around pfizer in terms of what the profiles look like and you know there may be sixty to eighty percent protection against symptomatic disease. There may be seventy to eighty percent protection against hospitalization and some protection against death. The problem is is it's not a hundred percent, right? And so you really do want to take those encounters with the bundle with the toolkit that uh, Lisa was talking about. So if you're going to interact, use it as an extra layer of protection. But still consider doing it outside, still consider distancing and making physical contact as as short as possible. Use those opportunities to say, okay, we're going to do this right um, uh, and add the extra layer of protection. Right now in Ontario, it's just really hard with things circulating the way they are to make that type of guidance to, to pull down all the precautions and just rely on the vaccine. Um, and so yeah, I mean people need to wait a bit longer, but you know again, that first dose is so important to prevent some of those adverse outcomes. and I'll, I'll say anecdotally right and, and Suman can 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 talk to this. the patients I've seen that have broken through that it might need that have needed hospitalization after you know a vaccine in a couple of weeks, they were the patients I would expect to be doing terribly when they showed up to the hospital, right? They were the ones that 70 plus year olds, lots of risk factors, you know, they're, they're the ones that should be super, you know, they have B117, they should be super, super sick and they're ill for a day or two and they turn around, right? Meanwhile, we have 50 year olds showing up with B117 that need to be intubated in 10 minutes. Um, And so it's, it's, it's miraculous, right? Even those breakthrough cases, even if they make it to hospitals seem like they're doing much better than the average population that gets through after that first dose, uh, and again, we don't have great therapies at hospital. We have steroids, we have tocilizumab, we have remdesivir. We don't have much else. You know, the 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 um, the, the the shift is you know four eight percent in terms of reduction of mortality. Maybe a bit higher if you make it to the ICU. But if you can reduce your mortality by eighty percent by getting a shot, like that's ridiculous. We have nothing else that can do that right now in the pandemic.
1: I was wondering if I could just pop something on on the timing of protection thing, because I've had a lot of people kind of inform me that after, you know, the shot, um, people are kind of getting fairly, fairly bold in their activities, Um, by which I mean, you know, not necessarily um, using the same precautions to the same degree that they did before. And it's super important that people realize that we don't really consider the shot to be really doing things for the first couple of weeks. And then the protection, um, you know, starts. And actually, the, the patterns are a bit different. The mRNA vaccines, you get like over 90% of the protection really from from week two forward. But we don't have much detail around what it does after that. Because in the trials, they then got their next dose that a really, tight intervals. So the trials could be done quickly. So at three to four weeks for the AstraZeneca, it's actually a really fascinating thing because the the protection against severe disease starts super early and then it just keeps on marching up and marching up and marching up all the way out to 12 weeks. And then at that 12 weeks, for all we know, the first dose protection is still going up, but that's actually a really good time to get the second dose. And so people are getting hung up on things, um, but they should be aware that that first dose protection is really significant. The only problem is we can't put enough um, numbers around it and we can't put enough numbers around the risk of transmission after vaccine to be able to say okay now it's a get out of jail free card there's a lot of work going on in that and I think we're going to have clarity but for the moment you can get your first shot and from two weeks to three weeks after that you can actually feel a lot more comfortable and confident when you're going about your business that you're protected against severe disease but we're kind of asking people to act like they haven't had their shot for a while yet Um, but I do think that's going to change.
2: Yeah. And just to kind of add a little bit into that, I spend my life in an immunology lab, right? All I do is look at T cells and B cells. This is like my world. Um, And I love to think of all those T cells and B cells out there being all protective two, three weeks after. But, But as opposed to asking me, what can I now go do? Can I go do everything? I say, listen, the highest risk activity is still the highest risk activity. Because this is not a, like the vaccine is amazing at preventing hospitalization and the like. But if we're gonna get out of this pandemic, we're gonna take the highest risk indoor, closest activity, and we're still gonna try and avoid that, no matter how many shots of the vaccine you've had for quite a long time. That doesn't mean it doesn't work, it means it works really well. And this makes everyone have chest pain, but this is still a good news story. You don't throw condoms out just in a sexual activity analogy just because. You have some protection against some STIs. You still use the condoms. So you still, in terms of activity and behavior, the highest risk activity, indoor, concentrated, is still not going to go away, trying to be a little bit more careful, even after your vaccines for quite some time. That doesn't mean that life is not going to get a whole lot more, more normal to Lenora's point. But, you know, you can't throw out the condoms too.
0: Quote of the night so far, do not throw out the condoms. Dr. Barrett. Absolutely not.
2: That's actually not bad advice,
0: (laughs) period, I think. Quadcast Nation, you heard it here. Um, You get it all, I'm telling you. Suma, were you following up, or am I just asking you a question? Sorry.
3: No, I think you're asking me a question. Okay, I'm just asking you a question. Okay, so... (laughs) I think what they said was amazing.
0: Yeah.
3: (laughs) So
0: the the common question that we get and this has come up actually locally quite a bit in terms of um timing of uh between doses and and thank you uh Lisa for for talking about uh Lenora and Lisa talking a, a bit about that but w- just to be clear like what's your opinion like we have um a lot of healthcare providers that are a bit anxious cuz they're not getting their dose within uh or waiting till a four month interval between uh, before getting it. So any thoughts on that Sumon?
3: Yeah, so I'm a I'm a student, uh, as many of us are, of Jay Keystone. And Jay Keystone was a, was was, a, was big into uh, clinical vaccinology. And one of the things that he used to always say, and I'm not saying that you can go with this all the time, but he used to always say the problem with vaccine do, um, multiple dose uh, intervals is not necessarily them being too far apart. It's being too close together. You might lose some efficacy. Uh, Lisa, by the way, if I say something egregious, uh, I, I want you to actually put a, a follow-up with Lisa here because you can-, you it's, can automa- me it's automatic. But, you're up, you're uh, and, up and, Just to give a a real-life example, um, and again, I'm not saying that the COVID vaccine is hepatitis A vaccine, but for example, you can have the second dose six to 36 months later, right? And the the point is that the immune system doesn't work like a, a tank that you're half filling, then full filling, you're giving a certain amount of protection that uh, Lenora was mentioning. It goes up. It might even be going up past 28 days. We don't know. And that second dose is just really kind of fortifying that and elongating the the, the, the response. So I think that we, we don't, the problem is we don't have that information. Uh, it's not well documented yet. So um, I think that it's, it's actually possible that you could go six months, maybe. I don't know that the second dose is fine. But the point that I'm trying to make is that right now, when we um, don't have the full information, um, whereas six, four months might be fine. I just think that especially in an emergency where you're not 100% sure about that, I can understand going to three uh, months, we, we had some data with AstraZeneca, but going well beyond that is just a bit, in my mind, was a bit of a, a move that didn't have the evidence behind it. We may get it later, and it might end up proving right, but I think that just given the situation we're in, we want to do something that's based on the evidence we have at the time, Uh, Abundance of caution. And just I I do, though, like the idea of getting as many first doses into people as possible. We just have to be careful about our, you know, our elderly people, people on chemotherapy, transplant patients, because they might not get that same protection with just a single dose.
0: Lisa, anything to add to that?
3: No, I mean she wants
2: it out perfectly. I mean it's I learned like my taking- immunology
3: from you. I used to by the way, just so you guys know, Lisa and I were in a fellowship together and I asked all my immunology questions to her. She remembered I only
2: answered one. But I mean there's that <laughs> integral part and it's like taking your immune system from an undergrad to like a PhD. So it's not just that you make bigger responses if you got the right PhD, you're actually making more sophisticated memory responses that can respond to more things, which is why number that the other piece here is don't skip your second dose folks. If you need a second dose for your vaccine, please don't skip it. It is super important to go from an undergrad to a PhD in this case, in terms of your immune system training, it's really super important. Um, so please advise your your folks to, to do that. But also the other, the other piece is, um, you know, Probably isn't a problem for most people. Again, this is all about us not just thinking of populations, but people. To your point uh, earlier, you got to let people make their own decisions. If they are a person who's likely not to develop great immune responses after the first dose, A, inform them of that, make sure they know it so they risk stratify their own behavior very, very appropriately. And then number two, get them that second dose as quickly as we can. We're, n- we're not going to accept a long period of time just because either.
1: I have a, just a follow-up on that, which is, you know, with the we have this Canadian context, which is super special because it varies from province to province and makes it extra confusing for everybody. Um, and the NACI guidelines that came forward with the second dose delay really actually said up to four months. And I think that there was a confident expectation that we would be getting more information and we are getting more information. And so no one should actually settle in and say this is the plan forevermore because the plan is going to keep changing as we learn more. And so, you know, data coming forward from people with cancer, data coming forward from the very, very frail elderly will probably mean that we identify groups that need the second dose to be given in a shorter time period. But at the same time, you know, if you actually have a really good chance of an excellent first dose response, your second dose can go save someone's life if you if you actually just kind of stick with the plan. And so I think there has to be some confidence also that we're adjusting to things as we learn um, and that that was never cast in stone, that that was always meant to be something that was going to be informed by more information because we, we live in a very fast evolving information COVID world now, don't we?
0: Yeah, I might say this has been one of the, the things that I have been most proud of within the medical medical community was like our COVID response, like how agile we've been during the COVID response. And I think, um, you know, for those that aren't in the medical field, we are resistant to change. So like, you know, in the ICU world, we did the 180 where we were intubating people early and saw that this wasn't benefit- benefiting our patients and transitioned to delaying it as much as we can. And th- these measures saved lives, like these anticoagulating patients are like, we didn't have data to support that, to be honest with you. And, but we saw everybody like we would see their dialysis lines. Units just clot after clot after clot. We'd go through so many filters. And like at one point we we're just like, you know what? Go on med Twitter. People are seeing the same thing, but, and then we start anticoagulating our, our COVID patients like that. Agility. Honestly, I hope we post pandemic lessons. I hope we really retain that. Cause it's it really has been life saving um The then that, who was up was it lenora or was it yeah yeah lenora i think i'm giving you a question yes i am giving you a question oh what was it y- yes okay it is questions about i love this one actually and i get this a lot i'm not i'm never sh- totally sure how to answer it. people on um immunologic agents so whether they're on chemo or have autoimmune disease that, and they're taking their methotrexate or, or prednisone, what considerations do they need to consider? We alluded to some of this, but what, what do they need to consider when uh, receiving a vaccine or we talked about the interval perhaps, but what other, what other considerations need to be thought of in those circumstances?
1: You know, it's it's interesting because we talk about immunocompromised people as if it's like a thing, but it's really so many different things, and they're all really really different. And COVID has really shown us that these groups, some of them actually have not been shown to have a higher risk of COVID at all. Um, as a matter of fact, there might even be some protective effect to to the medications, or else they actually were just extra special careful because they considered themselves immunocompromised. And so it's it's a really broad broad group. Um, but the 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 issue around vaccine um, efficacy and timing, people whose immune system might be a little different, um, is is one that's evolving pretty quickly. It seems pretty clear that some medications, like people around rituximab and and kind of allied medications, where you basically can't make antibodies for a while, there are definitely some considerations that you should make around that. For a lot of the other common immunomodulating drugs that are being used, it's really less clear whether there's any point to trying to gain the timing, just given the half-life of the drugs. Um, I would be interested in other people's comments on this because it's something that's moving along quickly enough that I think, um, I, I, I think that if you're at really high risk, you don't want to gain the timing and you should probably proceed with getting your first dose as soon as possible. If you're... Healthcare provider actually can actually work with you on the timing of your next dose of your medication, especially for something like rituximab or for chemotherapy. Then it becomes a really important thing to try to be flexible to what's happening in your own medical situation. So I don't think there's an easy answer, except that you might not actually be at a lot of excess risk, and you actually might not have to worry too much about vaccine timing, depending on what the medications are.
0: Any other thoughts, Cruel?
3: If n- if not- Zane hasn't talked for a while. I think he he has some burning thoughts. I think.
4: <laughs> Ask me a question, man.
3: <laughs>
4: uh,
0: you want a new question, or you want? Uh,
4: yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, okay. These guys have like covered yeah, the immunocompromised state off like so well. What's that, Maybe buddy? The immunologists know know way more than us, clearly. <laughs> yeah.
0: My next question, actually, I'm gonna. This one's gonna go to Lisa, actually. Just uh, sorry, you, you can piggyback it, Zane. Because I just think, as an immunologist, I think this is a great one. The, are we clear on whether you, post vaccination, like say you're fully vaccinated, the the idea that you're still trans, you could still transmit the virus to uh, other people? Have we have we had um. I haven't really read much about this of late. I know there was some data somehow supporting this in in Israel insinuating that there was less transmissibility. Um, But yeah, I just wonder if you had an opinion on that uh, matter.
2: Yeah, more so with AstraZeneca and then the Moderna and Pfizer both have bits and pieces of real world data that are coming out that look like um, the rates of transmission, particularly after full vaccination and why let's talk about before that let's not change what we do before you're fully vaccinated let's just go right to the end and look at what happens when you're fully vaccinated um there's multiple pieces of of real world data from around the world that suggest transmission is grossly reduced um not entirely gone so no immunologist ever says yes or no to anything that's that's the caveat to this question is we're we're a gray bunch um but Hugely reduced is the take home message, which is a very, very key core part. And that's the real world data right now with the current circulating viruses and the current situation that we're in. And so therefore, would I expect that there would be grossly decreased? I don't quote numbers here because we don't know what the actual exact numbers are, but they're in orders of magnitude. So transmission, very, very, very tiny. Um, And that I would expect to continue forward for a while longer. Do, as Lenora said, do I expect the table to keep, does the table keep changing with COVID? Yes, because this is a virus. And if we don't acknowledge that things change over time, we wouldn't be telling the truth. Um, And I think we keep watching the data, um, that we make sure that transmission stays low after full vaccination as we watch viruses change over time. But right now, yay, Um, best immunologic, uh, Uh, real world data correlate that I've seen in a long time is the reduced transmission. Awesome. Zane? Two big ones, like right. Israel right
4: now, right. Is like the real life melting pot of what full vaccinations do in a population, right? Like literally their case counts are, down to the lowest they have been throughout this pandemic, and they're wide open. Well, not wide open, but close enough in that context, right? So, you know, I, I think that's a real life example. And there's a really interesting study. And, and you know, this is maybe the the rationale for people to to get vaccinated to protect their family. They went to healthcare workers in the United Kingdom looked not only at them and the risk of what one dose did, either Pfizer or AstraZeneca, because those are the two that are being given in the UK. Uh, and they looked not only to them, but they looked to the direct family members and said, if a healthcare worker like myself gets vaccinated, what's my spouse's risk of getting COVID-19? It's reduced by 30% with me getting one dose of a vaccine. That's ridiculous, right? Like." Someone else in my household reduces their risk by 30% because I got a vaccine. Not that they got a vaccine, I got a vaccine. And even that 30%, right? You know, my wife gets her risk reduced by 30%. Guess what? She can get COVID from other other people in her life or kid at daycare, whatever. Um, And so that's probably an underestimation of that true effect, right? It basically, you know, takes me as the out of the equation into infecting her, at least minimizes me in the equation of infecting her. Um, and so people who are on the fence about making the decision about, you know, their own protection for their family, for their kids who may not be able to be vaccinated for some time, you're reducing their risk of getting COVID-19. And there's good data suggest it by a decent degree, by just the fact that you get one shot of vaccine.
3: One thing I'm gonna to add to this discussion, uh, I think it's important for us to recognize this is that we also have to remember, we, we, we know all the numbers, there's some numbers, there's doubt, there's all this blah, blah, blah. From the public standpoint, there's a big a divide, I think, in what we're looking at with all the data and all this caution and what the public thinks. If we start to tell everybody that, look, there's no concession to be given, and uh, Dr. Vinay Prasad talked about this a lot. You guys know him, uh, Dr. Monica Gandhi as well, on the podcast, that I think they did it with you actually, Kwajo. Uh, very recently. If you're not providing a concession to people, I get it. When you start to tell people that they can do stuff, the risk of COVID goes up. You're not going to do that in Ontario today. Right. But the thing is that if you don't give people a concession of something they can do once the vaccine is there or something they can look forward to in a short term, you're going to lose public buy in. Lots of people are saying, you know, what's the point of me getting the vaccine? I still think, though, the reality is that people want to get the vaccine. They know why it works. But I think one criticism that I have of the public health response here in Canada is that we've been very obviously we've been very reactive, but right now in the middle of a third wave Ontario, we should be talking about an exit strategy, even though that might be you know several weeks away. We should be talking about an approach of what we should do if you have one dose of vaccine, if you have two doses of vaccine, because we've been in lockdown at least in, in GTA since November people are going to start being together and we should be able to provide a framework of what people can do safely. And that's why I think that, um, you know, if if let's say if I have a, if my, if my dad has a, um, a Pfizer vaccines one month later and the rest of us is vaccinated, I sh- if, should be able to make the choice. If I wanna hang out with them, I should be able to and not have public health kind of, you know, um, giving abstinence-based messaging over me. And I just wanted to make that point because I think it's really important for public messaging uh, uh, from a public messaging standpoint. You gotta get people people hope dog you
0: gotta give them hope like why else are we doing this (laughs) you know what i mean i i I don't want to rise like like uh i want to focus on the positive but i i love the idea of this is what the future looks like this is what the exit strategy looks like like i think what we've been missing in this in pandemic is empowering the people having that positive lens what can you do you know right now in ontario instead of how could you not be staying at home? Shame on you or whatever. Be like, you know what? You're going to do your part. Come on this live cast. Get educated. OK, us frontline staff, we're going to hustle and do our part. OK, we're going to keep you safe, but do your part. Do, like don't gather indoors. OK, you know, hang in there for the next little while. But if you could get vaccinated and you're, you're hesitant, you're, you're worried about it. Get informed. Talk to somebody. But let's all try and do our part to get through this, because at the end of the day, we could get back to normal life through this. We will get back to normal life. Give the examples. Look at Israel. Look at uh, what's like UK is coming, starting to come through. Look at parts of the states. Like, let's show hope. Let's stop shaming. Sorry, I got to preach a little bit, getting <laughs> a little sweat here. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? It's, uh, but it's um, I like that. Yeah, no, but I, it's just, I, I, get, I get a little, sorry, another soapbox things, but like, just amongst our leaders, like think about times, like we haven't lived in a time of war or what have you, but imagine if our leaders were just like, you know, this is not good, guys. This isn't good. We need you to do better as opposed to like, we'll get through this. We'll do everyone, each one of you, do your part, and we'll get through. Anyways, sorry, that was the last, <laughs> that was the last rant. Um, for for now, um, for now, for now, for now. So this one, actually, I think I go to either Zane or Suman, whichever one's more excited about it. It it, it alludes to the the communication piece. You know, we, you and I have been, or all the two of us have been in contact with Heidi Tavorik. Um, who's been amazing. Her content is amazing in terms of how we should be communicating throughout the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of the ideas I just spun off uh, is directly from her. Um, Where do you think we can, could focus our energy now in terms of the communication piece when it comes to you know, the, the, the efficacy or the effectiveness of our vaccines.
4: I mean, I think it's a game framing this, right. People want to do these numbers of 90, 80, you know, the the best case scenario with these vaccines. And then Stefan barrel told me this a long time ago is it turns COVID into a cold, right. You know, so don't worry about 80 or 90 or 95, worry that you're not going to end up in the icu on a ventilator and you're going to get a cold instead in the worst case scenario yes variants are freaking people out but again these vaccines at least have been proven to to help with hospitalizations and deaths astrazeneca you know has one little issue with the south african variant in the context of very mild disease in young people um but all the other vaccines work well you know, again, you know, the, the worst case scenario is you get some runny nose, sore throat for a couple of days. You're not going to end up very unwell. And that's fine, right? You know, again, think about April 18, 2020. I, I keep going back to this, right? Like we had no clue. We were just getting through the first wave. We were slammed. You know, healthcare workers were scared. We were running out of PPE we have four vaccines, like we are immunizing people. We have, you know, I don't know how many million Canadians, there's 3 million Ontarians that have, more than 3 million Ontarians that have received a vaccine. Like this would be, like if I could go to, get in a time machine a year later and look at what the future would be, I would be overjoyed in that moment in 2020 that we had this today, right? And this is what we need to frame vaccines as. This isn't, you know, one is worse than the other, this is worse than the other. All of these vaccines, if they were the only one available in 2021, would be incredible miracles for us all. Uh, and again, you know, th- these are a way out of the pandemic and we are seeing it, we are seeing it in real life over and over in the United States, in the UK, in Israel, where this has worked so, so well. And that's the way this needs to be frank, right? This is the way back to normal. This is a miracle that we've gotten to this point to today. Uh, and again, these are the vaccines that in the worst case scenario turn COVID into a mild cold. In the best case scenario, you never knew anything happened. And again, those exposures lead to nothing else basically.
2: The one thing I will say about the messaging part too, just to add on to this saying is that giving people power and and Quadra, you, you mentioned this as well, works. Um, Telling people they are the master of this and it's not the government and meaning it um, in small parts of the the country. We tried to do that a little bit and it works. We don't have any AstraZeneca waiting in the cupboard. People took it (laughs) even when there's no COVID here at the moment. Well, I should not much COVID here at the moment because they, they felt that this was their part in the COVID response. And I think we've failed to capitalize on making people a part of the response by including them early on in every event, and then to... Follow that through by making sure that they know that they are the response. It's not the government. It's not something that Public Health Ontario does or doesn't do. They are in a good way, not in a put pressure on people kind of way, but what do you need and want and then give it to people. And boy, look at that. Even when there's no risk of, AstraZ- of uh, COVID or low COVID, people are taking AstraZeneca. People are keeping getting tested and they're going to keep getting tested. So I think that this piece of empowering people is not small or trivial. And
0: we've missed the bus in most places in Canada, and that's a shame. Preach, Lisa. Preach. That was dead on. That was dead on. Um, So, just a couple. We're gonna take, I think, one more question, guys. And for those that uh, are late uh, comers, if you put type in news n e w s, uh, it ties to our newsletter, and you will get uh, links to our this episode on a podcast format and the video format uh, because. this is what we do. We inform and we change the boogie. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I, I actually I think this is probably a good one to uh end on. And Lenora, when you you, you mentioned the mixing and matching. Um this has come up uh actually quite, quite a few times. Um well, how do I ask that question? What do you think about mixing and matching vaccines? Sorry.
1: Well I think uh I think it's really super common that people ask that like what if I get one vaccine now can I get the other one for the next shot and, and part of that is driven by people having kind of this idea of some are better than others and they're like well at least will I get the one I really want for my second shot um, and I, I think that's actually not really quite the place it needs to come from but I was going to point out that sometimes in some other diseases mixing and matching different types of vaccines actually gives you a better immune response and there's a couple of studies going on right now at at least two studies going on right now. They're mixing and matching. Uh, non, uh, non-replicating non adenovirus vector vaccines and mRNA vaccines. And my guess is, and this is totally a guess, that it'll probably be fine. It might even be very good. And so if people are kind of worried about which one they get, know that you might end up getting a veritable smorgasbord of options, actually, as you go through your life over the next several years. And, um, and that, you know, you'll probably have an opportunity to sample many different fine vaccines and uh, not to get too hung up on the first one.
0: Well put. Well put. Actually, there's one other one that I'm going to leave. If anybody wants to touch any, I'll just put it this way. Any opinions on vaccinating children?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a prerequisite right now until things get under control and there's clinical data, but I will say the Israel experience is actually really, really impressive of what it did to kids,
0: but they weren't vaccinating kids. No. They
4: weren't vaccinating kids, but they vaccinated everyone 16 years old and up. And guess what? Rates fell in those under 16. It's all when there's no like one that. to infect.
3: Exactly.
4: It's almost like a herd of people <laughs> that have immunity <laughs> that protects the
3: kids. It's exactly. Like pediatric infections are a reflection of what's happening in the community around them, rather than them being being you know vectors of uh, massive uh, spread. Yeah. Oh and, and so, yeah,
4: I mean, you know, we have data <laughs> for at least Pfizer to to age 12, you know, Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, I think are all doing the pediatric trials right now. And so, you know, they, they will be vaccinated at some point. It's interesting because vaccination in children as a long term strategy you know, we use things, you know, there's data around influenza vaccine potentially in children that actually protects the adult community as part of it. Um, but, you know, for a short-term strategy right now, put it into the people where it's approved and safe. I don't doubt that they, it's going to be, um, they're going to be effective in children. It just needs to be proven with time, um, uh, given the immunologic responses, especially, you know, kids over the age of five really start mimicking adult responses for the most part. Um uh, so yeah i mean it doesn't need to be done now it will probably be done at some point in the future it will probably be a part of kids routine immunizations in the future as with other vaccine preventable diseases um at least you know as we talk about uh, population-based controls long term um but for now it's probably not on the table for a few months but they're protected from you guys getting vaccinated right that's the big thing
0: yeah uh, thanks for that zane i wasn't sure if that was a uh... That was a dicey one. Right. A, yeah, no kidding. Guys, Lenora, Lisa, Zane, Suman, I, I got to really thank you guys for taking the time to do this. This was, you know, four busy, five busy docs, all of us together. And, you know, I, I just, maybe I want to put a, a point of emphasis to guys. Like this is how strongly we've, uh, we felt about the issue that we, within 24 hours, were all saying like, yeah, let's jump on this let's do this let's address the public's concerns about vaccines and once again with that lens of compassion with with empathy with inf- information empowering people with information this is this is our our ticket and honestly this is um I know it's going to mean a lot to people and I I am personally, I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was going to affect some lives down the road. Um, And so I, I just want to wholeheartedly want to thank you guys for taking the time, Julia. Thank you for setting this up. Actually, Julia, you, Uh, give you props too you brought this up about a month ago saying we should do a show on hesitancy and um luckily we were able to make it happen so guys thanks so much i'm indebted to you for a while and uh we're gonna keep hustling we're gonna keep hustling y'all we're
3: gonna get through this we're we're we're, We're we're all gonna get through
0: through
4: this absolutely
0: amen